With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Therefore, he appointed Jesus as head of the church, which is his body. And just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ and us. So we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and mature in the body, putting off our old selves to be made new and clothing ourselves with the full armor of God. Each part does its work until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In this series called Unified, and I want to just read again some of the scriptures that you just heard in the intro video, and really is the basis of this entire letter out of Ephesians chapter 4. Pastor Brian uh, spoke on this last uh, weekend. It says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's what unifies us, that there is one God, there's one Savior. We've been called to one family, to one church. So whether you're here in Bellingham or whether you're watching us in Skagit, it's good to have you with us down there. Or if you're in San Pedro and Belize down there at, at Hope Haven, we're glad to have you with us. Whether you're watching online with the live stream or throughout the week, whether you're at Boca Raton or in, in, at Crossway Church in Auburn, the one thing that unites us all is that there is one God, there's one word, there's one baptism, there's one Lord, and we are one family. You know, what's amazing is that this week has been a big week for us in that we had 700 people in this room for the Global Leadership Summit from all different denominations and churches and such, but we have this unity because there's one Lord. What's amazing is that we had seven of our guys from here and from Skagit uh, go to uh, the correctional facility there in Monroe where they were with brothers in the Lord and there's one faith and one word and one baptism and one Lord and we are one family. And we have a group of, of young adults, about a dozen young adults that spent the last 12, 14 days in Romania working with children and families and churches and villages in a group that is sometimes derogatorily referred to, not always, but as gypsies in Romania, brothers and sisters in Christ. And while it's on a different continent, in a different country, in a different language, in a different social economic class, we are one in Christ. That's the unity that we're talking about. And that's what unifies all of us uh, today here. Skagit, Boca, Online, uh, Belize, Auburn, Linden. I had to say it. I had to say it because it's fair week. Hey, uh, last week, 
<laughs> Last week, Pastor Brian uh, took us across the continental divide of this letter. He, he took us across the equator of this letter. We said early on that this letter of Ephesians that Paul wrote to this um, uh, churches, and specifically we're looking at to us at Cornwall Church, was broken up into two very distinctive parts. Chapters one through three are these deep theological truths that are about Christ and about us. And then chapters four through six is this practical living out, how do we live therefore? Because of chapters one through three, because of the truths of chapters one through three, therefore we live this way in chapters four through six. And it becomes very practical, a lot less uh, the, uh, like the theological truth, but now it becomes here's how we live this out in our relationships, in our world, in our priorities, in every aspect uh, of our life. Andy Stanley, years and years ago when he was in student ministry, he was teaching his students about the book of Ephesians and he put together this catchy little phrase to help them understand and remember these two parts of the book of Ephesians. And this is how he summarized the whole thing. In light of who we are by the gift of God's grace, let us walk in a manner worthy of our place. Because of chapters one through three, that talks about who we are because of God's grace, that we were dead in our transgressions, but we're alive in Christ, and it's because of his grace. And now we've been adopted, we've been predestined, we've been included, we've been brought into the family, we've been given an inheritance, we've been having his grace lavished on us because of who we are by the gift of God's grace. Now, with that in mind, in response to that, not earning that, but in humble gratitude and worship, let us walk in a manner worthy of our place. Let's live in a way and so as we go into this second part of the book, as Pastor Brian pointed out last week, Paul starts off the second half of this letter in chapter four, verse one, with these words, powerful words, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. If you just spend some time thinking about this and chewing on this, to think what does it mean to live a life worthy of the calling we received, worthy of all the things that have been laid out, that is amazing. And while it could be over, overwhelming and even burdensome, it's supposed to be freeing in this gratitude because of the grace that we're free in Christ to live the life that we are called and created and designed to live. Now in this second half, uh, as it goes into it, what we saw in chapter four, by the way, we're in chapter four again today, if you have your Bible or your tablet wanna follow along, Ephesians chapter four, in the first half of chapter four, what Brian talked about, Paul gives these, these kind of sweep, sweeping, broad brush, 30,000 foot view uh, uh, concepts for the church, that we are unified in Christ, that we, are, are, we grow to maturity in Christ, that the fullness of Christ is within us, that we use gifts in the body. And in the back half of this chapter, he, he uses the word you. Now, Granted, you can be like in this whole idea of all of us, you know, you together, but it can also be seen as an individual you. And here's what I wanna challenge you to do. As we look at this passage today, that you would begin to see this as words spoken individually to you. How does this apply? Not just what should the church do, but how is God calling me to live? About a dozen years ago or more, um, there was a book that came out, uh, full disclosure, I never bought it, never read it, heard about it. It was called, Eat This, Not That. I didn't want anyone telling me what to eat. I wanted to eat everything, so I did not buy the book. But Eat This, Not That became kind of a, a whole series of books, a website, an app, and the whole concept was this. If you're trying to be more healthy, if you're trying to lose weight, instead of just saying, don't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this, 
it gives you a substitution, an exchange. Eat this, not that. So it's not just all negative. Here's what you can eat. Look, celery. <laughs> eat, I, I didn't read the book. I'm sure it was better than that. But eat this, not that. And what's amazing is in the rest of chapter four, in the first part of chapter five, it's like Paul comes along with this concept. He says, live this, not that. That was then, this is now. I'm not just telling you don't, 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 don't. He says, this is how we are to live. And he gives us this exchange. Keep in mind, his primary audience, the vast majority of people receiving this letter were Gentiles. Gentiles who had found Christ. Gentiles who had been overwhelmed by the grace and goodness of God. Gentiles who had received the Holy Spirit. Gentiles who were brought into the family. Gentiles who had not been raised with the Torah. They had not been raised with the law. They were not covenant people. They had not grown up worshiping Yahweh. They had not had religious rituals and traditions throughout their, their childhood and teenage years. In fact, it was just the opposite. It was Gentiles who had been brought up in pagan god and goddess worship, brought up where there was a moral free-for-all, where it was not only acceptable, but expected that you would have this moral, hedonistic, debauchery lifestyle. That's what they were steeped in. And that's what they grew up in. And then they found Christ. And so he has this, this, this uh, task of helping them see, now, live this, not that. So in verse 17 is where we're gonna pick up today. And what I want us to do is I want us to just kind of walk through this phrase by phrase for a while. And then at the end, when it gets real practical, I'm gonna give you an assignment to work on that on your own this week. Verse 17, he writes this. So I tell you this, and goes, no, no, wait, wait. Not just me. And insist on it in the Lord. This is like from God. That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now wait a second. They are Gentiles. So you live no longer as I do. He says, yeah, yeah. And here's the key that I think he's trying to help them understand is your identity now is in Christ. That it used to be Jews and Gentiles, circumcised, uncircumcised. But now your identity is in Christ. It's no longer that you are just a Gentile or an Ephesian or a, you know, a non-Jew. Now you are someone new in Christ. Which, little side note for us, we need, as followers of Christ, we need to always remember that our identity is first and foremost in Jesus Christ. While I love our nation, we are citizens of heaven before we are citizens of the United States or Canada. While I love the freedom that we have in this nation, we are a part of the kingdom of God party before we're ever Republicans or Democrats. And that our, our citizenship in heaven and our part of the kingdom of God ought to influence our politics, not the other way around. Now, I'm not getting political here, but you need to take what, what God has called you to in his word and let that shape, rather than whatever else there might be, to shape how you live out your Christianity. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. But we are citizens in Christ. He says, there's a new identity we have. If you remember back in Ephesians chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 15, he said, Christ's purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. That there's not these Jews and Gentiles. Now there's this, this new community, this new society, this, this new nation, this new group, this new identity of people called the church in Christ Jesus. So he says, I don't want you to live like the Gentiles do. Um, 
I insisted that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now this is key. Because of the way that they had been raised, because of the lifestyle that they had been raised in and, and participated in, he's not saying, I want you to just, you know, there's a couple things you used to do I think you ought to hold off on now. He's not just saying, hey, we need to just clean up a couple things in your lifestyle, sand down a couple of rough edges. You know, there's a couple words. Let's not use those anymore. Um, you know, and, and that, what you used to do over there, I'm, that, you know, let's hold off on that. He's not just talking about making a couple of little behavioral changes. He says, I don't want you to live in the way that you used to think, in the way that, that there needs to be a, a complete transformation of your whole mindset of your perspective, of, of what are the priorities of your life? What is the passion of your life? What attitudes do you have? What are your motives? How about your morality? What about your belief system? What about your theology? Because when you change all of that, it will impact and affect the way you live. And he says, and they live in this futility of their thinking. Remember, he's painting this picture of what God is doing, not just in the church in Ephesus, but on a global scale, what he's doing in the redemption of the world and how he's called and invited us in to be a part of that. He says, the way that, that you used to think, the way the Gentiles think, that's futile, that's unproductive in what I'm doing in and through you, in the kingdom of God. He says, they're thinking, it's futile, and not only that, he says, and they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Now, he's really just pointing out the picture of where they had been. In Ephesians chapter two, around 11 and 12, he talks about while we were dead in our sins, we were objects of wrath. You know, at that point, we were separated from Christ. We were without hope and without God in the world. And he says, that's where you were. You darkened in your understanding. And that's a theme that he'll come up uh, back to in chapter five. We'll look at that uh, next week, this whole idea of dark and light. He says they're darkened in their understanding. This isn't just something Paul came up with. He's, he's taking what Jesus said and applying it to how they've lived and how they haven't lived. Now, most people, not everybody, but most people are familiar with John 3, 16. It's one of the most famous uh, verses in the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Many of you are familiar with John 3, 17. God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. Not many of you are familiar with John 3, 18. <laughs> Crickets. Whoever believes is not condemned, whoever does not believe is already, already stands condemned. And by the time we get to John 3, 19, we're just, we, we're out. John, John 3, 19 and 20, Jesus says this, the verdict, the bottom line, the final thing. Here, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. His truth has come into the world. His grace, his kingdom. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's the words of Jesus. And Paul's saying, you were dark in your understanding. There was light, but, but you chose this darkness. Darkened in the understanding, futile in your thinking. And then he goes on. They were darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, and we'll finish out that sentence. But there's this ignorance, but it's a result of something. It's not just, well, they're just really dumb. No, there's an ignorance, a lack of knowledge due to, as a result of, because of, the hardening of their hearts. When I read that word, I, I think about like calluses. 
You know, if you've ever had a pair of shoes that you love, but they don't fit quite right, and then suddenly, after however many weeks or months you endure with it, there's a callus. Or if you've ever swung a hammer for any length of time, or a, a shovel, or a broom. If you've ever played guitar, there's this callus. And a callus is really kind of an amazing thing. It's, it once again reflects how God has said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The way that he has created our body what starts off as an irritation, usually a blister, it's kind of negative, but the way that God has designed our body that it begins to layer over these thick layers of skin for protection, it's a beautiful thing. When I was growing up, I used to have a callus right there. It's from the way I held my pencil when I was learning penmanship and cursive. <laughs> Big callus right there. I have calluses across my fingertips from playing my guitar. I don't have a lot here from all the home repairs I've not yet done. But calluses, they, they protect. But he takes that and he says, that can become a very negative thing when the heart gets hardened, when the calluses come over the heart, when there's this plaque buildup on this heart, when there's this calcification of the heart. And it's insidious because calluses don't happen overnight. They start slowly and over time. You build up these calluses, and he says, and it's the same with the heart. You might not even recognize it. There might be this slow thing that's happening, this process where your heart has become hardened, and when that happens, then you lose all sensitivity. At that point, when your heart is hardened, when it's calcified, when it's calloused over, when, when the plaque is built up, no longer do you hear the promptings of the Holy Spirit because you become hardened in your heart. No longer are you struck with awe and wonder and worship and gratitude at the goodness of God and his love melt in your heart because it's become hardened. And no longer do you feel the sting of conviction when you wander outside of the will of God, when you go into a sinful pattern or a lifestyle or an action or an attitude, no longer do you feel that sting of conviction. Let me tell you something. The sting of conviction is a gift from God. And just a little side note, if ever you get to the point where you can sin and it no longer impacts you, it doesn't affect you, it doesn't bother you, it's not a big deal to you, fall to your knees and pray and fast and beg God to peel the callus off of your heart. Because when we get to that point, we're in very, very scary territory. No longer hearing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. No longer hearing his promptings. Our hearts have become hardened. We've lost all sensitivity. And then that takes us even to a further downward spiral. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given, given themselves over. This willful obstinance of just saying, I don't care about God's will. I don't care about his word. I don't care about his standard. I don't care about his morals. I don't care about any of his will. I, I've given myself over, given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. I can't imagine that a society would ever get to that point. I can't imagine people of a nation would ever get to that point. I can't see how this is relevant to us in the United States today. Nothing has changed in the human condition. This has been going on for 2,000 years. This is the world we live in, giving themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. We're gonna get into this more next week when we get into chapter five. But he says, it says we just kind of thrown ourselves into this. At this point, we don't care anymore. And what you find is this, that, that in all this, while there's this, this progressive calcification, there's a spiritual degradation that just keeps going lower and lower and lower. 
while the heart is getting hardened, we just keep going farther and farther away from God. The, the whispers of the Spirit get fainter and fainter, and we get farther outside of the will of God. And it's a process that takes place. And he says, this is, this is what you were. This is how you used to live. This is how you used to think and the futility of your thinking. This is how you were darkened in your understanding. This is how the heart condition was for you. This is how your, 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 your fleshly desires just ruled you. And then he does a contrast. Remember, live this, not that. So he set up you know, a very clear picture to them and they say, I know, been there, lived it, got the t-shirt and the scars to go with it. He says, contrast, but however you, you however, different now. You did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Listen, that was not the path to redemption. You didn't sin your way into the kingdom of God. You didn't harden your heart into the way into citizenship in this new family. He says, you were given knowledge. You know about Christ and not only that, you know Christ. He's become uh, dwelling within you, recreating you. And, and notice the contrast, the futility of thinking and the truth of Jesus, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, let the thinking of Jesus work its full effect in your life. Think differently, think on truth, not on this futility of the way that everybody else is thinking, their perspectives, their mindset. There's a new way of thinking. And he says this, verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. This, again, this is the way they used to live. Your former way of life, past tense. You know, in the 90s, in the uh, arena of music, there were a set of letters that were used. Uh, this set of letters. And... Um, they stood for this. The artist formerly known as Prince. Some of you may remember this, some of you are saying, Prince? It's okay. Prince decided to change his name to an unspeakable symbol. So his name was, <laughs> but you couldn't say it. So in order to refer to him, because he didn't want to be referred to as Prince, he wanted to be referred to as this symbol, they had to use this the artist formerly known as Prince. He's not Prince, but he's the artist that we used to know as Prince. Well, what's interesting is, towards the end of that whole season with him, we were making a move as a church. Uh, and this is gonna give you a little church history, okay? Because I, I have people all the time say, tell me the story with Cornwall. Especially those of you out of town here. Uh, not a lot of a story. We used to have our facility on Meridian Street, right next door, proximity-wise to Cornwall Park. It's a city park, slides and swings and such. So we were referred to as Cornwall Park. It was a geographical notation, Cornwall Park Church of God. And then over the years, we just kind of started shortening it. Cornwall Park Church, Cornwall Church, Cornwall. And then, in the early 2000s, we moved to this facility, which is nowhere near Cornwall Park. And we went through this whole thing of, what do we call the church now? And we thought about, for a very brief moment, the church formerly known as Cornwall. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't go with that. 
But when, when Paul is writing to these people, he, he's talking about who they once were, who you formerly were known as. And it's almost like he could say to them, you are the people formerly known as Gentiles. This is how you used to think. This is how your heart was. This is how you used to live. But if you've read the letter, and if you know what Paul talks about, he doesn't want them just looking back on how it was. He always wants them to see who they are and who they're becoming. Maybe he would refer to them as this. The sons and daughters alive in Christ by grace, formerly known as Gentiles. That's who they are. Now they're sons and daughters. They're a part of the family. They were dead, but now they're alive, and it's in Christ, and it's by grace, not anything they've done. They were Gentiles. He says, you were taught in the way that you formerly lived, your former life. He says, but that's not, you are now sons and daughters. You are alive now. You're in Christ. You are people of grace. And then he continues on. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Some of your translations might say, lay aside your old self. A couple of your translations might say, throw off. But this whole concept of putting off has with it the idea of changing clothes, um, that, that you would put off these clothes. But it's not just, um, you know, just changing clothes because I'm gonna put on some different clothes. It's, it's more than that. It's like changing wardrobes, changing style, getting rid of clothes. Now, here's one of the areas where my wife and I are very different. I have shirts and sweaters and shorts and t-shirts that are out of style, out of date, worn out, don't fit, but they're in my closet. And my wife, almost on a weekly basis, says, Bob, let me just go through your closet. Because she's a thrower. And I'm a valuer. <laughs> she always says, let me just go through your closet. Let me. I said, no, no, no. She says, when's the last time you wore it? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's the kind of stuff if I wore it, you'd say, someone needs to talk to him. In fact, I thought about wearing something this weekend to illustrate this point. I mean, I was thinking about those parachute pants, those hammer pants, that neon colored gotcha sweatshirt. I was gonna wear it all. Maybe some corduroy OP shorts, that would've been interesting. <laughs> Got all these clothes and I want, especially sweaters. I just like these sweaters. I mean, I've had them and yeah, I, I'm not gonna wear them, don't worry about it, but they're still there. She says, let's just throw those away. It's like, did Mrs. Rogers ever throw one of Mr. Rogers' sweaters away? No. Mr. Rogers went to the closet. You don't know how many sweaters were in Mr. Rogers' closet. And so often, we get this idea of, well, I just, I'm just gonna save it. I'm just gonna store it here in the closet instead of throwing it away. And this idea of, of putting off, the, the put off is, is not just to put it like in a, in a, in a closet or a her, hermetically sealed bag or in a box under the, to put off means to banish, not just to store. It's to banish it, it's to destroy it, it's to throw it away, it's to get rid of it. You'll never need it again, you don't wanna be reminded of it. Get it out of here. Now we can laugh about old sweaters, but let me give you something that may be a little more hmm, pertinent. I was born and raised in the South, Louisiana to be exact. The N-word was a part of vocabulary in the area where I grew up. 
And I hope we as a nation have decided to put that word away and not to put it in a closet, but to banish it, to destroy it, to never use it again. Anti-Semitic slurs shouldn't be put in a box under the bed, shouldn't be put in a closet, they should be banished. The way women have been treated, that shouldn't just be put away in a box or sealed away for later, that should be banished. And Paul says, do you not understand? The old self, that old lifestyle, that old way of thinking, that old way of, of acting, the old way of living, don't just put that in a closet. You banish that. You destroy that. You, you get rid of that. Never bring that out again. And then he gives a very clear reason of why. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. Banish your old self. Why? It's being corrupted by its deceitful desires. It, it's, it's putrid, it's rotting, it's decaying, and, and it's got this way of tricking your mind to, to help you believe this will make you feel more superior, this will be, give you value, that this is the path to happiness, that this is what will be true pleasure. It has a way of deceiving you in the, in the deception, and yet it's destroying you and destroying God's work within you. And when you give in to those, those desires from the old life, it just corrupts and it rots the beautiful work of God within your life. And then again, he does this, this contrast. Live like this, not like that. He says this, you were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Like, like this is different now. Like you were dead but now you're alive, that was the old, this is the new. And it's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of seeing, it's a new way of perceiving, it's a new way of acting, it's a new way of prioritizing. Completely different mindset. And you're putting on a brand new self. That old has passed away and everything has become new. I mean, what does the Bible say in 2 Corinthians chapter three? We all with unveiled faces, this harkens back to Moses in Exodus, we all with unveiled faces, all reflect the glory of God, are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. Not the old self. We're being transformed into the likeness of Christ, being made new in our attitudes with a new life. What's it say in Romans? Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, the old way of thinking, the old understanding, the darkness of your heart. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Fixing it on the truth of Jesus, the truth of his word, God's way, God's will. This new life, the way that God designed you to live. See, what he's getting at with these people is that it's not just this external behavioral modification, but it's an internal life transformation. Some of us were raised in church and we were given a lot of external behavioral modification rules to live by. This is what we do, this is what we don't do, and those were all good. But sometimes they were devoid of the why and the how. It's because of who we are in Christ. It's not just because these are bad things, don't do them. Just say no or else God will be ticked. You don't know what kind of punishment you'll get, you'll end up in hell, whatever you were taught. But it was just a list of rules and it was lifeless. 
What he's saying is, no, there's an inner transformation when Christ comes within you and his Holy Spirit is dwelling within you that he is making you a new man. He's making you a new woman. There's this ongoing process. It's this, this present tense progressive being made new in Christ and this ongoing change in our lives. Um, in, uh, in 2003, and for about 10 years, I think, there was a show on TLC. I honestly, honestly think I watched it twice, not because I think it's a bad show. I just, I don't watch a lot of TV. I remember seeing it twice. I remember two episodes. The show was called What Not to Wear. And the whole concept of this is that people were nominated by their friends <laughs> because the things they were wearing should not be worn. And so this camera crew would follow secretly around this person. And the, the two episodes I watched were women and, and just showing how out of date and whatever their hairstyle, their clothing, et cetera, was. And then they would have this kind of this big reveal and they would come to them and they would say, hey, your friends have nominated you. We would like to have you be a part of this, this, uh, this program, which would allow them actually thousands of dollars of, of shopping spree. But there was some requirements to engage with. Some would say, no, I'm, I'm happy with how I look, how I dress. I, this is me. And like, I'm comfortable in this. And no one else was, but I'm okay with this. But there were some requirements to enter into this. They had to be willing to relinquish their entire old wardrobe and then shop and buy only where this group told them to shop and what to buy and submit to their leadings on that and then trust them. And the result is, they would become beautiful, at least on external. Well, Paul is saying internally, what we need to do, because what we're doing in here with our thinking, with our darkened understanding, with our lifestyle, all of heaven is cringing and saying, oh no, someone needs to tell them. And God comes to us and says, here's what it's gonna take. You need to relinquish all the old life. And then you need to submit to me and trust that what I produce in you will be absolutely beautiful. This change within us. And then he says, this is what it's gonna look like. To put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I don't know how many of us would say, you know, my spiritual goal for the next year or so is that I would become more like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's God's goal for us. In fact, in Ephesians 1:4, it says that he predestined us for this before the creation of the world. He predestined that we would be righteous and holy in his sight in love. That we would have this transformation, this change. You see, the old way, the Gentile way, was progressively going away from God, progressively going towards their own degradation. But now in Christ, it's progressively becoming more like Jesus, more like God in true righteousness and holiness. There's a complete change there. That we would look different, that we would think different, that we would act different, that we would wear life differently. When, when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave, Lazarus has been dead for four days, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He comes out, and then Jesus gives instructions to the crowd that's there. And he says to them, take off his grave clothes. They were fine for his former condition. Listen, when you're dead, grave clothes are good things to wear. But they're not befitting of someone who's alive. He says, take those grave clothes off. When Jesus came back on that great resurrection morning, 
and the disciples ran to the tomb and they went in the tomb and what did they see lying there? Jesus' grave clothes. They were fine for a while he was dead, but when he was alive, it's different. And he says, now, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You lived in grave clothes, but you are alive in Christ. And now, throw off those grave clothes and live in grace clothes. Live in these beautiful, glorious robes that God has given to you. And the way to live and to think and to act. And so in the midst of all this, he, he does this, this whole concept of the old and the new and putting off and putting on and live like this, not like that. And then he gets, he says, okay, okay let, me, let me give you some examples. Now this is not an exhaustive list and for the rest of the, from chapter, uh, from verse 25 to 32, he gives this list. It's not the all-inclusive list. He says, let me just give you some examples about this. So in verse 25, he says this. Therefore, each of you must put off, but he doesn't stop there. What you'll see is this, live like this, not like that. That he's instructing them to put off a vice and to put on a virtue. Over and over again, it says, don't do this, but do this instead. And we don't have time to go through these. Uh, they're so practical. This is where I want you this week to spend some time in this chapter, especially in this section, to see maybe there are, might be some areas that you need to put off and some areas you need to put on. But he says, it's kind of this, New operating system. You know, in verse 25, he says, stop lying. Instead, start telling the truth. Be truthful. You know, don't stretch the truth. Don't fib. Don't lie. And then he goes on, he says, and, and the anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't be angry people. We're called to be peaceful. We're called to live that way. And then he says, you know, as far as dishonesty and greed and, and the theft that goes with all that, he says, stop doing that, get a job, be useful, and become generous. Be a generous person. And then the word gossip doesn't really fit here completely because it's so much more than that in Ephesians 4.29 when he says, listen to this, let no unwholesome talk come from your mouth, but only what is helpful for others in, in their time of need, building up others in their time of need, that it may benefit those who listen gossip, but it's more than that. He says, let your words be encouraging. And then he gets to verse uh, 31, 32, and there's this whole list of things that we could call revenge. He talks, about, he talks about bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and malice and slander. He says, no, 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 verse 32, he says, be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you in God. He says, this is how you used to live. This is now how you are to live. This is how the world operates. This is the world's operating system. This is the spirit's operating system. This is how the flesh operates. This is how the, the, the spirit operates. This is the new life. This is the way that you're going to live. And what's amazing is, right in the middle of that, in verse 30, he throws in this piece that just gives it even more teeth. Verse 30, he says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We're gonna come back to this probably at the very, very end of the series. But do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve this work that the Holy Spirit, don't push against it. Who you are was designed by God the Father before the creation of the world. Who you are was purchased by Jesus and his precious blood. Who you are is being implemented by the Holy Spirit. Don't push against the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit 
in his process of transformation, of making you the man or the woman, the son or the daughter that you were designed and created to be from before the foundations of the world. Keep in step with the Spirit. Walk with him. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. All of this is because of who we are in Christ. So it's not this guilt-ridden obligation trying to earn anything. It's the response. It's the gratitude. It's the overwhelming humbleness of our heart to think that God would choose us and redeem us. I mean, think about this. The only way that we can do any of this is because of the fact that Christ did the exact opposite of this. That Jesus put off beauty and glory and put on vulnerability and weakness so that we could put on true righteousness and holiness and grow stronger and stronger in him. Jesus put on grave clothes and experienced death, the grave, and corruption so that we could put on grace clothes and experience life and beauty and glory. And because of chapters one through three, he says in response to that, of God's grace is lavished on us, the the unspeakable riches of Christ, the only response to that is living a distinctive life in Christ. It's not just a list. It's living this life that's different, different than the old life, different than the rest of the world, in Christ. So I want to challenge you with this. To spend some time in Ephesians 4 this week and honestly ask and assess, has my heart become or is it becoming calloused in any way? How sensitive am I to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? How sensitive am I to the conviction when I have things where I've gone off? Are there some things that I need to put off and some things to put on? Is there some attitudes that need to change being renewed in the attitude of my mind? Because he starts this chapter and he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received the sons and daughters alive in Christ by grace, formerly known as Gentiles, but it's who you are in Christ. Live in a manner worthy of the calling.